So good morning. Got questions. That's the name of our series. And always a challenge to do this particular series. We try to do it often. Uh, probably have decided we probably should do it about at least once a year. Uh, but it's a challenging series. Why is it challenging? <clears throat> because we, as AJ explained sooner or earlier, give you an opportunity <clears throat> to ask questions, whatever you're asking. Now here's what I found. Long time ago, I've been a pastor for a long time. A long time ago, I decided, you know, here's part of our problem in the church today. The church today, we seem to be answering the questions no one's asking. And the questions people are asking, we don't want to try to answer. <laughs> now, there's good reason for that. And part of the reason is because sometimes we're not comfortable with the questions they may ask. Sometimes we have no idea what the answer is to the questions they may ask. Sometimes it's something that's very difficult to explain and uh, there are all kinds of reasons why we shy away. So we decided that whatever you asked, we were going to try to answer. Now obviously we had more than three questions come our way for this particular series, but not a lot more. You know what was very interesting? Our students asked far more questions than adults. Now, I don't know if that means the adults have it all figured out or what. Probably not. But the students were just bold enough to ask us some questions. Like last week, a student asked this question. Does God love people who are in hell? What a great question and gave us a great opportunity to talk about that subject, about how God is a God of love, but he's also a holy God, and, 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 and how heaven is not our default destination. I would challenge you to think about that. Maybe go back and listen to last week's podcast if you didn't. So this week's question, while very appropriate for Valentine's Day weekend, is a tough one. Now, it's tough in a different way. Last week, I shared with you that the answer to last week's question was a little vague, a little gray. You had to kind of pull together this passage and pull together that fact and pull together this scripture to put together an answer. However, this week, the answer to the question is extremely clear. So the difficulty is not in clarity of the answer. The difficulty, frankly, is in handling the subject matter that A.J. kind of alluded to by saying, if you knew it, congratulations for coming, and if you didn't, I hope you don't leave. I don't think he said that, but I'm adding that point. All right, so what is this question? Well, it's pretty clear. What does the Bible say about sex before marriage? And everybody is saying, oh my, where are we going here? So I want to talk about that just a little bit. I want to try to answer the question from a biblical standpoint, from a biblical point of view, and maybe try to help us build an ethic that the Scripture um, uh, speaks of and, and, and supports. Uh, uh, somewhat uneasy with this subject, i got to tell you that. And you're like, well, why does it make you a little uneasy? Because you see these gray hairs in my head? That means I grew up in a different day and time. And in my day and time, you didn't talk about this stuff in church. Can I get an amen from anybody out there? You know what I'm saying? You didn't talk about this kind of stuff in church. Matter of fact, many times you didn't even talk about this at home. Honestly, you just didn't talk about this subject. And now here I am on a Sunday morning, I got to talk about it. So I got to tell you, it's a little bit awkward for that reason. There's still part of me, you know, that remembers how I grew up and so forth. So why even tackle it? Well, first of all, because you asked. And we said, if you asked, we would answer. Secondly, because clearly we live in a day when this is an explosive subject. And our culture lives in a day that we have to deal with it, unfortunately, because it's being dealt with at an earlier and earlier 
age every year. It's something that we've got to deal with. It's something we've got to talk about and really should because the Bible, frankly, is absolutely clear on what it has to say about the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. I think it's fine for us to delve in. It's fine for us to begin to look at it and see what it has to say. Did you know, if this, if this is not enough reason to talk about this, let me get you this stat. We learned this week through a little research that the average age... Now, the average age, meaning some start older, some start younger, right? Which is going to be hard to believe. The average age for a child to begin looking at pornographic material is 11 years old. 11 years old. One of our young people reminded me at, as we were going out the door, at 14, many are having babies already. My daughter, who is a middle school teacher in the public school system, has told me about students who bring their babies to school with them. So forgive me if I have to touch on an, awesome, uh, an awkward subject, and forgive me a little bit if I'm a little uncomfortable and yet press on, because I believe it's a subject we need to talk about. And I hope you're willing to listen to. Now, as you might suspect, I'm going to broaden this subject. You know I'm going to do that. I'm going to broaden this subject because I knew some of you out there were going to be saying, whew, I'm married. I'm checking out. No, you can't check out. Because here's the thing that might interest you. It might interest you to know that the real answer to the question, what does the Bible say about sex before marriage? The real answer is <clears throat> nothing. But it has a lot to say about sex outside of marriage. Now, what that means is it does have something to say about sex before marriage, but it also has much to say about sex outside of marriage. And guess what? That includes all of us, even those of us very, very married. I posted this week how grateful I am to do life with my beautiful wife here. And I, I actually posted something, and she said, you know, people are going to read that wrong. And because I posted on the, on, on the social media that I was happy to do life with her for 48 years. And so everybody thought immediately, we've been married for 48 years. We haven't been married for 48 years, but we dated for four years before we got married. And you know what? We didn't live together, but we did life together even then. 48 years. We started when she was five and I was six, you know? <laughs> Not really. The truth is the matter. We're very, very happily married, have been for a long time, and by the way, are more in love today than we were when we first got married. And I know you think that's just gumbo, gumbo, jumbo, but that is the absolute truth. We love each other dearly, and I'm committed to this young lady greater than I could ever express or commit, and I don't mind anybody knowing my commitment is to her. But I'd be a foolish man to write off what we're talking about today and say it has nothing to do with me. Rick and I were talking about this yesterday. I hope you don't mind me saying so, Rick. Rick and I were working together, painting back there, and we were talking about this a little bit, and we were talking about the foolishness of anybody, anyone, who says this has nothing to do with me. I reminded Rick that Oswald Chambers, a guy that I read a lot from his devotionals, Oswald Chambers said this, and I'll never forget it. It's one of those things that's etched into my mind. Oswald Chambers says, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Meaning if you have a strength and you let your guard down, you're doubly weak in that particular area. 
So you may be strong in this area. You may have a strength. You may have a strong ethic. You may have a strong commitment and a strong discipline. But you need to listen. We need to hear what the Scripture has to say. You're saying, well, I'm checking out because I'm old. Hang on just a minute. I told Rick about a story I heard. It's a true story, and I've always laughed about it. There was a certain uh, professor who went to a, a seminary to address a bunch of seminary guys who were going to be preachers one day, and he was a guest to the seminary because he was 90 years old. He's not pre teaching regularly, but he came in for a one-day conference, and the preachers had gathered. He finished his presentation, and he asked some questions, question and answer time. One of the questions came from a young man probably 23 years old. The young man raised his hand. He said, sir, I have a question. He said, okay, son, what's your question? He said, my question is, we've been talking about the fact that we need to be guarded in this area of sexual intimacy and how this can ruin a ministry and how this can ruin a life and da-da-da-da. He said, how old are you? What age do you get to where it's not a problem anymore? There is no urge. There is no desire. There's no issues with this. How old do you have to get? And the man who was 90 replied quickly without thinking, I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there. That's kind of the way it is. None of us are beyond what we're talking about today. We all need an ethic in this way. So I want to do my best to answer this young person's question and to go even further and to talk about what does the Bible say about sex outside of marriage. Because here in a nutshell, here in a quick answer, is what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that the sexual relationship is between a man and a woman and should stay within the confines and the boundaries of marriage. And anything outside of that becomes a loophole. Now, I know what we think. Here's why I think this question keeps coming up. Because here's the deal. I think either y'all like to see me suffer through this stuff, or you keep asking it for another reason. I think maybe one reason we keep asking this question is because we hope the answer will change. You know what I'm saying? Maybe the answer will change. After all, our culture has changed its mind about this question right now the younger ones don't realize that but the older of us oh those of us older remember a culture that thought very differently about this than we do today the culture has changed but can i just say something to you the answer to this question biblically will never change so no matter how many times we keep asking it the answer is going to be the same no matter what our culture says or no matter what we want to think now we can do with it what we will but the answer doesn't change and the answer says that it is to be held within the holiness of marriage now here's what I want to do today rather than just throw something out there that you've probably heard before I want to talk about two questions or two points I want to make two points about the sexual relationship between a man and a woman number one I want to show you that God for, for procreation God has given us a desire for sexual relationship. The second point I want to make is, for protection, God has given us some boundaries for that relationship. All right? For procreation, he's given us that desire. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I, I need to quickly get to the Word of God so I can um, stay out of trouble here. Look at Genesis chapter 2. It's an incredible passage of Scripture um, and uh, one that we can look at and learn from. It says in verse number 22, uh, Then the Lord, the Lord God, made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to 
the man. Now hold on there. Let me remind you what this is. This is one of the most incredible stories in the scripture. I love it. God has created man and woman. In fact, he's created all the earth in six days. However you want to justify that scientifically, however you want to deal with that, that's not the point today. Here's what I want to say today. In six, at least as the Bible describes it, six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he did, each day, he ended the day by saying what? Do you remember? It is good. When he created the light, he said, it's good. When he created the fish, he said, it's good. And all the fishermen said, no, it's very good. All right? When he created the beast of the field, he said, it's good. But when he created man on the sixth day, do you remember what God said? He said, it is not good. Did he mean that his creation man was not? No, no, no. He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So immediately, God blesses us with this need, this desire for companionship that is not bad. It is not bad for have this desire, this need for companionship, this need for someone to do life with. Beth went with me to Israel this year. She doesn't always go. I go a little bit too often and she's not always able. But you know what I find? I find that I enjoy visiting a country like that way more when she's with me. Why? Because we have that companionship and we're friends and we're, we're partners in every way. And I like that companionship. And God said, it's not good, man. It's not good for the man to be alone. So it's God's blessing, this idea of companionship, this idea of community, this idea of marriage is God's idea. It's not ours that we just decided one day, hey, why don't we do something called marriage? No, in the beginning, God said there needs to be some companionship. Now read on. It says, And the Lord God made the rib, and the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now let me stop there just a minute and tell you how this story unfolds and see if this is not really great. Now granted, my holy imagination sometimes gets me into trouble. So I'm going to try to keep it in check here. But when I read this story, here's what I see happening. When God said it's not good for the man to be alone, he said... I'm going to find, I'm going to search for a partner. So you know what he did? He brought all of the animals before Adam, one by one, the scripture says. Now, can you imagine? God says, Adam, you sit up here on Pride Rock. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You sit up here on this rock, and I'm going to parade the animals by, and we're going to find you a suitable partner. And you know what happened? The animals came by. Scripture says Adam named the animals. But every time, he said, nope. That one won't do. I can just imagine the hippo coming by. Nope, that will not do, right? I can see the muskrat coming by. No, nope, that will not do. And so God says, okay, then Adam, you go to sleep. And God performs the first surgery, people have called it. And, and God takes a rib from Adam. And here's what he says. We read it. He made. In the Hebrew, you know what the Hebrew term is? Hebrew is a very picturesque language. It's really a lot of fun. And, and, and when, when Hebrews, in fact, when they speak in Hebrew over there in Israel, sometimes you'll think they're really mad at each other. They're not, right, John? They're just kind of going back. That's just their nature. It's fiery, and it's, it's, it's picturesque. And so in the Hebrew, here's what it says. It says, God took the, the rib, and he built a woman. He built a woman. To me, that implies some thought. That implies some direction. That implies that he had something in mind when he made this woman and brought him to this man. And when he brought Adam, and Adam woke up, and he saw the woman. I, I can't speak the Hebrew, but here's the meaning. 
Wow. Now that will work. Right? Now that will work. I understand that language because I remember very well, even though it was a long time ago, I remember being in a church choir when this beautiful lady walked in as a teenager and I saw her and I thought, wow, that will work. Right? And you guys did the same and you ladies the same. And that's that thing about the relationship that's really cool. And he says, this is it. This is it. And then he adds, watch this, at least bone of my bones, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and what? Bonds with his wife. And they become one flesh. Now keep that vocabulary, keep that word usage in your mind, because in a moment we're going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to see Paul, the apostle, use that same language in relation to marriage. He talks about how a man and a woman come together as one flesh, as a bond of intimacy. And that bond, I really believe, and that coming together as one flesh is really what this is all about. It's all about a bond that comes, a closeness that comes, and needs a deep commitment. A commitment that goes way farther than just, hey, let's have fun. A commitment that says, I'm committed to you, and you're committed to me. And we become one flesh. So we see, first of all, God did indeed give us this intimacy, give us this sex for marriage. It is ordained of God. It is promised by God. God, for the sake of procreation, says yes to that sexual relationship. How do I know? Because in the next chapter, you know what we read, or the previous chapter, you know what we read? God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I got a feeling Adam said, that's all right with me. Think we'll work on that, right? And so God gave this beautiful desire and decided to not only have purpose in it, but also to make it pleasurable. And by the way, if you chase the, screen, the theme through, through Scripture, here's what you find. You find that the relationship, even the intimate relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, become a picture of the intimacy that God desires of his people. Now, that, <clears throat> don't let that thought just blow your mind. Think about it just for a minute. That intimate relationship where the two become one, that intimacy that comes from a marriage relationship, that covenant agreement is a picture of God's relationship to us. In fact, you remember in the New Testament, Paul wrote these words. In fact, they're often quoted at a wedding. He said, that a man should love his wife, a husband should love his wife, what? Even as Christ also loved his church and gave himself for it. And immediately we see this connection between husband and wife. And then he says to wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto what? The Lord. There's this beautiful picture, the husband and wife, the picture of the husband and wife become a beautiful picture of the relationship and the intimate relationship that God desires for his people. And can I tell you this? In the, New, in the Old Testament, when the people of God were unfaithful to him, when his own people were unfaithful to them, you know what he called them? He called them harlots. And he called them unfaithful. 
a language they could understand because the relationship between a husband and wife in that intimate relationship of sexuality becomes a picture of the intimacy that Christ desires with us. And we are to be faithful to him and no other. And he is faithful to us. He is committed to us. He is in covenant with us. And no other. Wow. So you're saying, Pastor Eddie, that this very relationship between a man and a woman is likened to our relationship with God and that even this intimate relationship between husband and wife can bring glory to God? Absolutely. Or, outside the boundary, it can bring destruction to your life and to your relationship. So why? Why should we save sex for marriage. If that's the answer, if that's where we're going, why? Because first of all, we need to understand it is a picture of the covenant relationship of Christ and man. It is the, it is the relationship that God established with its boundaries. The second thing I want to make, the second point I want to make is this. For our protection, God realized that we needed boundaries. We need boundaries. How many know that boundaries are good? The beautiful Swanee River. I love to watch the Swanee River, and there's nothing more beautiful than, than being on the Swanee River and watching that water gently, lazily move downstream. It's so beautiful. It's so captivating. It's so relaxing until the water gets out of the banks. And then what happens? The water destroys whatever's in its wake. Those beautiful Bahamian beaches that I've enjoyed for years when I go down there. i got to tell you, I go down there for mission, I go down there for ministry, but I also love the beaches while I'm down there. Some of those beautiful beaches in the world on Grand Bahama Island. I love them. But you know, a couple of months ago, several months ago now, those waters got out of the boundaries. And instead of stopping on the shoreline and lapping up gently, the wind... And the storm of Dorian caused those waters to rise outside of the boundaries and covered that little island nine foot deep. As a result, there's nothing but destruction and wasteland left. Boundaries are good. If I were to build a fire in my house, there's a place to do that. I love this weather. It's cool weather. We love to build fires. We had a fire this weekend, and it's a wonderful thing to build a fire. But you don't build a fire in your living room. You don't build a fire in your kitchen next to the stove. You don't build a fire on the carpet in the dining room. You have to keep it within the boundaries of the fireplace or the pit or whatever it might be. Fire kept within boundaries is warm and comfortable and cozy. But fire outside the boundary destroys. It's the same thing with this relationship that we call sex. It's, it's wonderful within the boundaries, but taken outside the boundaries, it becomes destructive and pain and hurt. And I know there's people who haven't seen that yet. And you're like, I don't know if I believe that, Pastor. Well, let me take you to another passage and show you where Paul talks about that. Look with me at 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 6. And there's so much here. I wish I had time to unpack all of it. Unfortunately, I don't. But I want to just get a part of it. Look at beginning with verse number 12. 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 12. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, I think he's saying, there's something you may be free to do, but it may not be beneficial. Now think about that. There's a lot of things he's talking about here. 
And I think there are a lot of things that you may be free to do, but just aren't real smart to do. Okay? You may be free to do some things, and you say, well, I have freedom in Christ, and da-da-da-da. I would say to you, yeah, you have that freedom in Christ, but guess what? You're pretty stupid to go do that. If you struggle with alcohol, you probably don't want to go into a nightclub or a beer joint. Right? If you struggle with, you know, my struggle is not with that. My struggle is with food. You put a fried chicken in front of me, it's hard for me to remember that clogs my veins. Amen? It's hard. Best thing for me is not to go to Old Times Buffet. Sorry if that's your place, but I mean, mine too. I just don't go there. There's, all things are permissible, he says, but not everything's a good idea. And then he goes on. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, that's tough because things master us, don't they? For instance, there are things that get a hold of us and we allow to get out of the boundaries and they soon master us instead of us mastering them. For example, think with me through this. The desires that we have are good until they get out of the boundary and they master us. As long as I master them. For example, hunger, appetite. How many of you know that's a good thing? I just mentioned fried chicken. Probably not a good uh, follow-up here. But think with me about food just a minute. That appetite is a good thing. My dad has been in the hospital since November. Some of you have been praying for him, and I appreciate that. Um, and he's doing better, by the way. <clears throat> but he's still there. And I've watched him through that, those days as he gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And I'd say, Dad, you got to eat. you got to eat. And he'd try to eat a little something. And then he said to me one day this. He said, I have no appetite. I wish I was hungry, but I'm not hungry. See, I'd heard that before. I remember visiting with an older guy, an older friend of mine, years ago, who was in my church at the time, and I went by his house because he was getting sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker, and I went by to see him, and he said to me, he said, Pastor Eddie, he said, my problem is I have no appetite, and so I don't eat. It occurred to me then that appetite is a good thing. It's a good drive that God has given us. But when it masters us, good appetite becomes gluttony. You with me? Same thing with rest. Rest is a good thing. <laughs> I remind Beth about that often. Rest is a good thing. It's good to take a nap every now and then. It's good to rest a little bit. God created a Sabbath. He said... Take the Sabbath day and separate it and rest. Cease from your work. Rest. It's a good thing. But when rest becomes our master, the result is what? Laziness. You see what I'm saying? These drives that God give us, if they master us, become problem. The drive for a sexual relationship it's not a bad thing. God has blessed us with that. And you all should say amen to that. It's not a bad thing. But guess what? It has to be kept within the boundaries and not master us. If it masters us, it becomes lust, sexual promiscuity, and immorality. Now, in case you don't remember, believe me, let's read on. And we'll see a little bit more in verse number 13. 
Verse 13 says, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord, uh, God raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Oh, that's interesting. So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? You see, these folks really had a problem. This thing had gotten so bad when Paul wrote this letter that they had prostitutes in the temple. A part of their worship experience was to go to the temple and be engaged with a prostitute. Now that's how far this had gotten away with them. And Paul says, what are you doing? Should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. Going back to Genesis. Don't you understand that that relationship brings them and makes them one? What he's saying is, listen to me carefully, what he's saying is this is so much more than just the fulfillment of a lustful need for gratification. It goes so much deeper. And that's why it's so important. <laughs> the problem is we have other things that we gratify in our flesh. This is one of them. Look what he says. He goes a little bit further in verse 17. And he says this. <clears throat> um, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then watch this. Flee sexual immorality. Now that's pretty clear. That's an imperative that's clear. There's no question. We don't have to debate it. We don't have to wonder about it. It's pretty clear. Anybody confused by that? No. He says, flee sexual immorality. Now, you may say, but what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is the perversion of that blessing that God gave to us. That drive that God gave to us as a gift becomes perverted and becomes immorality. The Bible uses several words to describe it. It uses the word fornication which talks about a, a consenting relationship between two people outside of marriage. That is where both of them are outside of marriage. It uses the word adultery, right? Because adultery is that consenting relationship where one or both are involved in a marriage. So you see, we can't just say, oh, I'm already married, this is not for me. I can't oh, yeah, 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 because listen, listen to me carefully. The question is not just premarital, it's also extramarital. And you've committed to faithfulness to your wife, sir. You've committed faithfulness to your husband, ma'am. And that makes a difference. And that commitment is important. And being unfaithful is breaking that covenant agreement and breaking that relationship and, and listen, really dishonoring Christ. Flee, he says, sexual immorality. That relationship, extra, pre-marital, that relationship that's there. Homosexuality is the third thing he mentions. And again, he's talking about these things are, are things that we must deal with in our hearts and deal with in our, our own minds and our own thinking. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
Wow. Now, when we were in Israel, we went to see the Temple Mount where the beautiful Temple of Solomon once stood. And then later, the Temple of Herod once stood. And, and it's this gorgeous place. And what I thought that the, the, the presence of God dwelt, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in that temple. And now he says, but that's gone. But it doesn't matter because here's why. Your body is the temple of God. God lives in you. I remember when I was a teenager, my pastor saying something that kind of stuck with me. And frankly, I wish he wouldn't have said it, just like some of you are wishing I wouldn't say some of this stuff. And what he said is, he said, you got to remember, young people, you're taking Jesus with you everywhere you go. He messed up my life. You know what I mean? Because there were certain places I wanted to go, and I thought, you mean I'm taking Jesus with me there? May not be a good idea. Messed up my life. And yet, blessed my life by reminding me what Paul said. This body belongs to God. In fact, he says that in the next verse. He says, you're not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. What he's saying is, this matters, guys. This matters, gals. This matters because our bodies belong to him. He dwells in my body, and my body is to be his temple and is to be lived out for his glory. So it does really matter that we learn to keep the sexual relationship that God has blessed us with within the boundary of marriage. And when we do, there's nothing more beautiful. Now, how do we do it? I spent a lot of time on that, and I don't have much time left, but I want to take the few minutes I got left, a couple of minutes I got left, to give you some practical thoughts. How then can I do that? Because I'm looking in this room, and I'm looking at the room that was earlier, and I'm looking at those who are going to be listening to this podcast, and I'm knowing this. We've got to know how to deal with this. We've got to know how to, how to prepare ourselves. We've got to know how to fight this. And because here's what I know. I know that there are people in our church, besides those outside of our church, we're struggling with this. You say, so, Pastor, what do we do? So I want to give you some thoughts. First of all, I think, number one, we have to escape the prison of pornography. Now, I don't want to lay every, all the blame on pornography, but this is what I know. We did research this message a little bit. We did think it through. And one thing I know is that pornography runs rampant in our world today, in our culture today. Not only our 11-year-old kids, but our 111-year-old men and our 30-year-old women, our teenagers and middle schoolers. And we don't think there's much to it. We don't worry about it. It's just something we don't need to worry about, talk about, think about. We agree. Let me tell you once, let me tell you very carefully. Here's what you're doing. When you insist on sitting before that screen, You're taking the fire out of the fireplace and you're putting it on the carpet and you're just waiting to be burned. You're waiting for the time it'll burn you. We've got to escape the prison of pornography. It's rampant. I was shocked to read a statistic that 60% of our seminary students are engaged in pornography. Does that not bother you? That's our guys who are preparing to lead our churches. 60%. 
the numbers in this room, a crowd like this room, would be even higher. I'm telling you, you've got to escape. We've got to escape this particular prison. Shut it down. Well, I can't shut it down, Pastor. To get help shutting it down. Find a way to shut it down. Find someone that will help you shut it down. Did you know there are websites now available that you can go to? And you can share it with a friend? If I'm a mind to, I can go to a website and I can share it with AJ and I can say, AJ, every time I go to a site I shouldn't be at, it's going to pop on your screen. I want you to call me and ring me out. Hold me accountable. Second thing, determine to wait. Determine to save that part of your relationship. You know, that waiting, waiting, waiting. None of us like to wait. I don't even like to wait on a burger at a fast food place, right? I don't like to wait in a long line at the grocery store. I don't like to wait at a stoplight. We don't like to wait for anything. I'm so grateful for my relationship, my friendship with Rick over there. We were talking about it yesterday. It's amazing what you can talk about on church work days. And Rick reminded me that there's a valuable, valuable character trait that we often miss, and it's called waiting. Just learning to wait. Maybe you need to wait on that new car. I've got to have a new car. I've got to have a new car. I don't care if it's 25% interest. I've got to have one now. Maybe we wait until we can pay for it. You know, oh, that's a new thing. Waiting, determined to wait. Third, keep the fire contained. <laughs> Don't be playing with the fire and pulling it out. Don't what? Keep that contained. Fourth, I got to go quickly. Y'all are listening real good, but I'm 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 done. Deal with guilt of sexual failure. You know why that's important? Because I know somebody in the room. I don't know who. I don't know your personal stories. Thank the Lord, so I can say these things. I know someone in the room has failed in what we're talking about. And you feel like, oh, no, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I can never. Listen, the good news about the blood of Jesus Christ is that it covers us from all sin. And God is in the business of restoring us and building our relationships. That's the thing that's really cool. Matt Chandler is a preacher that I love to listen to. He's a younger guy. Of course, everybody's younger than me. But he's a younger guy, and I love listening to the channel. And I remember him telling a story of when he was younger. He was just a very young pastor at the time. And he'd gone to a conference that was a True Love Waits conference. You know, kind of, you, you, some of you know about that. And they were talking about this very subject. And he said a guy got up there to speak, and he had a rose in his hand. And he said, this rose is kind of like you when you're pure and clean. And then he said, pass the rose around. Everybody touch it. And everybody would pass through the crowd, and they'd touch the rose. And when it came back to him, the rose was bruised and battered, and the petals were falling off, and it was pretty ugly. And the guy, Chandler said, the guy stood up and said, you see this? This is you. And who wants this rose? And Chandler says, I was sitting there, and all I could think of is Jesus. Jesus wants that rose. Because Jesus specializes in taking broken relationships and healing them. He specializes in taking our brokenness and our dirtiness and our sinfulness and our, our, our awfulness and turning us into righteous, holy people by His grace. So I don't care where you've been or what you've done. I don't care how big a failure you've been in this area. I want you to know that there is forgiveness in Jesus and there is restoration in His name. And you can deal with that failure.
and come to the place that you can forgive yourself as he forgives you. And then you can move forward in his direction. And finally, adopt some strategies. Adopt a, a, a strategy for how am I going to deal with this? Four quick things that I found that I just really liked, and I'm going to give to you. Can't talk about them, I promise. I'm almost done, but I want to give you these because they're worth looking at. First of all, how do I, what kind of strategy do I build? All right, start with this. You've got to believe truth over lies. Believe the truth, don't believe lies. Believe the truth of God's word over the lies of our culture. Second, identify triggers. Know what triggers you to the wrong directions. Figure those out, find them, identify them. Third, have a game plan. Have a game plan going in. Don't wait for the moment. And finally, have accountability partners. Find somebody that you can trust and that you can talk to who can hold you accountable. Find you an accountability partner. So the truth of the matter is nothing's really changed. If you came this morning knowing the subject, thinking, well, maybe something's changed. No, culture has changed things, but the Word of God hasn't changed. And here's the takeaway, and I'll leave it with you, and then we'll go into another subject. Beliefs about sex. I really believe this. Beliefs about sex didn't change because they weren't working, but because they weren't easy. It's a whole lot easier to just follow our drive than it is to control the fire and follow the pattern that God has set forward. It hasn't changed. It's not going to change. If you're looking for loopholes, you're only going to fool yourself. But it's important enough that you need to nail down your ethic and know what you believe and why you believe it. <sighs> you guys have listened well. I'm worn out. <laughs> I said this is not an easy subject for me. I guess it's because we just didn't used to talk about these things. But now we got to. Next week, we're going to tackle a question much different. And yet one that I'm looking forward to tackling. The question that comes from an adult, by the way, finally, and not a student. The question we'll look at next week is this question. Why is it that Jesus, who is the Son of God, called the Son of Man? You know what I'm talking about? How many times in Scripture... Does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? So why is the Son of God referred to as the Son of Man? That's next week. Can't wait. <sighs> Hope I'll see you then. Pray with me, would you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us this moment this morning to talk about, to tackle, to deal with a very important um, subject one that we're not always easy or comfortable talking about, but one we believe is essential and necessary to address. I know, Lord, that the devil has us fooled in this in so many cases, and I pray, God, that you would show us the truth, <clears throat> teach us the truth. Lord God, speak into our hearts and speak into our lives. That's only you can. Now just as we sit in the quietness of this moment, I'm asking you to take a serious thought on this matter. Maybe that you're not married. 
Maybe you're young, maybe you're older, maybe middle-aged. And you're thinking, ah, that's for teenagers, not for me. I, I would consider you, I would challenge you to consider God's Word in the biblical ethic. Maybe you're here and you're married. And you considered checking out when I started, but you realize now that you can't check out because faithfulness is hard to maintain in this society and culture that we live in. And you know friends who you never thought would fall to it who have. And I'm pleading with you not to. But to do that, you've got to set up some boundaries in your life. Some of you are thinking this is a physical problem. No, it's a spiritual problem. Am I committed to glorifying God in every part of my life, including in my own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit?